Oh, hello, and welcome to Intune Pathways, the podcast. This is the place where we explore autistic identity, culture, and family lifestyle. I'm your host. I'm Christy Forbes. I'm a late identified autistic woman. I'm an educator. I have ADHD and I am a PDA autistic. If you're not sure what PDA is, it stands for pathological demand avoidance. Ooh, we'll get into that in future episodes. I'm also a parent of autistic children and my passion is shifting away from the medical disorder narrative and into a newer awareness and radical acceptance of the social model of disability. Thank you for joining me. All episodes of the Intune Pathways podcast are recorded on Wurundjeri country. The Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung people are the traditional custodians as part of the Kulin Nation. I pay my deepest respect to elders past and present, and at Intune Pathways, we are committed to the amplification of First Nation voices and decolonization in our work. Sovereignty was never ceded. This country always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Well, I'm back again and speaking with my colleague and great friend again, Kieran Rose, again. Kieran is a published mainstream and academic author, an international public speaker, trainer, researcher, and consultant to organizations all over the world with a specialization in autistic masking, autistic burnout, and autistic identity. If you'd like to learn more about Kieran, check out our show notes and enjoy the episode you're about to hear. How can we tell if somebody is autistic when we're communicating? How do we communicate as autistic people? Ironically, even though we are told that we are not very good at picking up body language, what's actually being missed is that we're very good at picking up on body language cues from other autistic people, but not necessarily picking up on cues from non-autistic people because the whole DSM is framed around us being broken, real people, normal people. But actually, if you look at us as whole people, our way of communicating is very, very different from non-autistic people. So they're missing that kind of trick and that kind of aspect of it. Yeah. And it also helps to reframe again, that aspect of it being culture Mm. rather than disorder. Because if we're able to look across a room or come face to face with one of our own kind, our neuro kid, that doesn't say to me that we're very good at spotting disorder in people. It tells me that we're very good at spotting our culture. And you could say the same for any culture or identity. I know that within the community, we joke about having a radar, an autistic radar. Yeah. I think that's the same for any community. We can spot our people when what we're looking at is a part of our inherent being. It's intrinsically who we are. So I think that's really important for people to know. I know you and I are asked a lot by parents, do you think I might be autistic? And often they want to know, what is it that you see in me that makes you believe I'm autistic? And sometimes that's really hard to pin down because it's an essence of a person. It's the way we connect. We prefer connection over socialization. Now, when I connect with somebody very easily and we go deep very quickly, that's a pretty good indicator for me that somebody is likely to be autistic. Yeah, I think it's what would be looked at by non-autistic people as oversharing. 
<laughs> um, <laughs> I've got lots of people who use me as a source of info dumping. So we might not have many conversations, not proper conversations, but every so often someone will pop up in my messages and go, blah, 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 blah. And it's like 400 messages long and then they'll go again, which is fine because I've told them that they can do that because they don't, they don't need a response from me. It's enough that they can just go, Bleh. And then they can go again. They just need a thumbs up from me or whatever. Someone has acknowledged their existence and what they've had to say. And that's pretty much it. And I don't tend to do that much with other people. I tend to be more of a listener than a splurger, but I like that. I don't feel the need to splurge, but I feel the need to listen. You're like that as well, Christy. I mean, I know we, we talk back and forth all the time, but we talk on a very deep level most of the time when we're not making fun of each other. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah, there's always has to be a bit of that, but <laughs> I just like to be there for people. No, but it's interesting that you bring that up because we've had conversations before about autistic people who internalize. Mm, yeah. And, and you can be both. You can be an internalizer and an externalizer, which I am both and I love to listen like you're talking about otherwise I wouldn't be a consultant but I find something very enriching and satisfying about just holding space for other people but I'm also an offloader it's just about getting it out free yeah yeah really interesting obviously not everyone's an offloader but I think for those that are it's about that energy exchange again, because that's their energy and that's their energy they need to release. And if there's someone there who's ready to catch it, not necessarily take it on for themselves, but just enough to catch it and then put it down. I think that's really, really an important aspect of our community, that there are people like that who can take that role on and can be that kind of listening role. And when it becomes overburdened, that's a difficult thing. If you're taking it on and keeping it and hugging it and not letting it go, then that's a very different thing. But if you're capable of listening and then just putting it to one side and just be happy that someone out there has had the opportunity to kind of offload at somebody, yeah. and that's really key. And you do get that from those parents that you were talking about before. In a way, it is a bit of a release of trauma, I think. It acts like a therapy. It is a release. And someone's actually actively listening to what I'm saying. And I think quite often parents are heard, but they're not properly heard. People don't actually listen. Yeah. They nod and they agree and then they go back to their agenda. Whereas when a parent offloads to me for the first time, usually, and you know, like exactly what you said, it is that space holding. And it's safe. And, you know, sometimes I get, well, not sometimes, a lot of the time I get chronological emails. So somebody will send me an email and it will tell their whole life story and it will just go on and on. However, to me, that's a communication that I'm safe for them. And I think this is a very big clue around how we spot each other. So there are people that will use other language than autistic. There are people that will say things like rainbow people, or indigo people, or gifted people, or highly sensitive persons. It's it made a comeback recently, hasn't it? It has. Uh-huh. It has. And I guess my thing is I get a lot of people come to my page and read my content and then I see them share it in those groups and they say things like, oh, this person thinks that this is autism, but they don't know that it's just being a highly sensitive person. <laughs> I kind of laugh about it now, but this really is so indicative of how little people understand about autism because people are fixated on the child presentation. So they expect us to still struggle with communication in the way that we may have as children. But a lot of those struggles like, is that 
when everything you do is riddled with anxiety as a young person and as an adult, of course, there are going to be significant differences in the way that we communicate with people who aren't a part of our autistic culture. Because I never know what I'm walking into. And I remember at uni, for example, you know, for three years at uni, I had a great friendship, fantastic friendship group. I look back now and I can clearly see they were autistic as well. And the following year, I went into a different course with different people and I was completely shut down. I didn't find a group per se. I struggled to show up because I didn't identify other autistic people. That was hard. So it was like a fluke. Sometimes I'd thrive in social situations and sometimes I would just not know what to do. Should I be silly right now, which is usually my go-to? Should I be performative? Should I seek out someone like me, autistic, and connect with them? What should I do? And if I didn't have those leads, I'd get the hell out of there straight away. I was not the kind of person that would hang in there hoping that things would change. If I was in a situation where I was potentially looking stupid or vulnerable, I'd get out of there. That's probably got more to do with demand avoidance than just being autistic, I guess. I mean, I don't really know. I think, I think you're right there because I think looking at my experiences, I would get to a certain point and then I would blend in. I would just disappear into the corner of the room kind of thing. And, you know, I'd become part of the wallpaper. And so that point of leaving, I would probably never get to because I probably, if it was, I don't know, if it was not that I ever went to house parties, but if it was a house party, I could imagine that after everyone had eventually gone home and all the lights were turned off, I'd still be part of the wallpaper. <laughs> you know, I'd still be there. <laughs> like when you said that, I blend in and become part of the wallpaper. I felt the cringe from head to toe at that feeling of being in that situation. For me, it's absolutely unbearable. It is unbearable. And I admire any autistic person who finds a way to remain in that situation because, oh my Lord, it is painful. Uh, I can feel it. I'm reliving it. <laughs> yeah, I just, I believe. I think in terms of the communication aspects of that as well, do you find that it's those situations that you describe, your ability to find that other autistic person or to be comfortable in that situation or to do whatever you had to do was also situational, depending on how you were feeling, what happened that day? We often talk about autistic people and the things that go with us as being set in stone. And, you know, this is what you are like. And you are like that 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year. But as a fact, it's in flux as well, isn't it? It's that aspect of things being fluid. And we sometimes talk about spiky profiles. And I think people misread the spiky profile thing as well. Because again, they assume that if you have a spiky profile, if you, I don't know, mapped out the, the spikiness of the Andes or the Himalayas or whatever, that it would remain like that. But it doesn't remain like that. It's all oh. flux going up and down and so many different contexts play into it. And it makes it so confusing sometimes because you don't know where you are. Yeah. And I don't know about the UK, but in Australia, we have this ridiculous concept called support levels. So now when people are assessed and diagnosed, they're assigned a one, two, or three, depending on their support needs, which is so 
I don't even have a word for it. It is absolutely ridiculous because I can be absolutely debilitated by anxiety in one moment or one day. I can be in autistic burnout for three weeks and then I can be like this. So having a number of signs to how autistic you are or how much support, because it is translated like that, how autistic you are. When people hear number one, they think mild autism. I'm a number two, which a lot of people are surprised. <laughs> number two has a whole different meaning over here. <laughs> I think that's about the gist of it, if I'm honest. I think it is, really. <laughs> yeah, it fluctuates, doesn't it? It really does. It does. I mean, when I was teaching, I could have a great day, absolutely fine, communicative. I could get in front of a classroom. I could talk to my kids. I could do the whole colleague thing in the office. But on the days where we got a member saying, there's going to be a staff get together this afternoon, I'd be out of there. Because Uh at the end of the day, even though I know there's autistic people in there, my friends, my colleagues that I could go to, no, just not up for it. Can't do it. Just cannot. Various jobs that I did, whether in schools or the jobs that I did afterwards, the only events outside of work that I would go to would be the Christmas kind of do or meal out or whatever, because no, because it was socially acceptable to get drunk off your face. Oh, yes. And in situations like that, if you are drinking, you're part of the crowd. You can say what you like because you're drunk and it's excusable and you can act however you want. So it was another way of masking, but it was the only time it was ever acceptable for me to do that. I still didn't like them, but I felt compelled and peer pressured into going to these things. So the fact that I could drink meant that I was less bothered about going to them because I could get drunk and I could do what I wanted, which was at the time when I drank kind of heavily anyway. Me too. Me Uh too. I mean, alcohol is not for me in this lifetime. It played a Mm. big part of my masking for a long time and I can't even drink like most people do. The only reason I would touch alcohol is to wipe myself out and to dumb myself down, to shut off my sensory sensitivities dull my being and to be able to just word vomit like everybody else. And that sounds really insulting to other people. I just realized there is a truth to that. I drunk my late teens through to my mid to late twenties. I drunk fairly heavily more in my kind of late teens and early twenties. But that was also very much attached to the job that I was doing around that time. I was working in London and, you know, you got on the train at six o'clock in the morning, you were at work at half past seven, eight o'clock, you worked all day and then you went drinking out at night and you rolled into bed at two o'clock and got back up and did the same Mm. thing the next day. But within that, it was a very clubbing scene. So I could literally be in a dark room. I could be the wallpaper in the dark room. Didn't even need to be wallpaper because you couldn't even see the walls. You could have conversations with people where they would yell at you and you would yell back. And it was absolutely acceptable that nobody knew what the other person was talking about because you couldn't hear them, you know, and you could drink within that. And then in that as well, I was, I was very heavily into dance music and I was stimming with dance music. I realized that now I didn't know it then, but I absolutely was. That was me getting everything out and I would drink because the drink would keep me awake. It would make me hyper. And so I could dance more. And I could just go on and on and on. And it would just kept me going. Looking back now at that aspect of my life, which was a really terrible time and was a really unhealthy time physically and mentally, but actually I can see why I did what I did there. Yes. 
Me too. Before you said about the music, I was just looking back thinking the first time I ever walked into a club, it was like heaven to me because the music was loud. For me, really loud music can be, even though I have sensitive ears, it can be a form of deep pressure seeking. It's sensory fulfillment, the bass in my body. And so exactly what you're saying, I could dull my senses, be with anybody and not care and dance the night away. And it was incredible until it wasn't. It gave me the wings to fly and then took away my sky in the end. And I just was far worse off than I began. But anyway, that's a whole other topic. Alcohol and drug addiction can be a way of masking and coping. But it is also connected to the communication stuff because we think of communication as an exchange of words, but it isn't just an exchange of words. To a degree, you can look at a person and they are communicating, even if they're standing perfectly still doing absolutely nothing. Whether you read that communication right is a different thing, but they are communicating by what they're doing. It's funny you sound about being sensitive to noise and stuff because I'm partially deaf. And I think that's through years of what I'm about to explain. I used to go to gigs. And I used to stand next to the speakers at rock gigs, <laughs> you know, literally when your whole body would be bouncing just through the bass coming through the speakers. And I needed that noise and I hate noise, absolutely hate noise, but loud music. I need loud music. If I have music on my headphones, people complain because they can hear through my noise cancelling headphones and they can hear the music coming out of them because it's that loud. But I need that. I realise now, in a way, it was me communicating to myself because it was my body and my nervous system telling me what I needed. But at that point, I wasn't listening to myself. I wasn't communicating with myself well enough. And that's another thing as well. When we see, literally see through autistic people that don't realise that they're autistic, a lot of that is because we can see through the mask that they put on. It's really weird. You can't obviously see it, but it is that energy. I think, again, you can read the person underneath. You can see that person trying to push their way out and being pressed down and suppressed. Yeah, and it's interesting. While you were speaking, I was just thinking about the fact that when we talk about communication, a lot of it isn't necessarily literally about communication. It's about connecting with each other. And I think that's what we've been talking about when we started. So we're talking about how we connect with others. Communication itself is really interesting because I think when people read in the DSM that there are communication deficits, they expect to see somebody who is going to have speech delay or obvious differences in the way they communicate. However, people like you and I and many, many autistic people are very good with words because for me I mean one of my majors at university was language it was literature and that's because I love writing and we've talked about this before I love the written word it is the most beautiful form of art so growing up because I was reading so many books because that was my passion or my special interest but so many words going in 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 all the time meant that by the time I hit my adult years even before that I had probably a wider range of vocabulary in comparison to my peers and so people will often say of me you're so articulate or you communicate really well but what they're not understanding is that's because I'm an autistic person and I hold on to things that are really special to me. And one of them is language. One of them is words, poetry, the written form of art. So it's in there. 
because it's my special interest and it comes out because I've studied it. I think also that can be used as part of masking. I've been working on masking for years and um, there's actually people play bingo with me now for me mentioning it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to say it's a drinking game, but it could be. (laughs) But uh, I call that directed hyperlexia. So hyperlexia is the ability uh, when you are effectively pre-five, the ability to read at an adult level and to use vocabulary, which you would assume that an adult would be able to use and a child wouldn't. Lots of people who are autistic, who are able to speak and were able to speak on time or speak early, usually it's because of hyperlexia, because we suck up written words and we can just regurgitate them. But quite often it can be a way of fluffing your way through situations as well. Um, Because if you use big words and you're able to communicate in extremely knowledgeable sounding sentences, actually people are oh yeah, they're amazing, aren't they brilliant? Yeah. But they don't realize it's a lot of superficiality because actually there can be a lot of nothing underneath. And that's why lots of autistic people are amazing at general knowledge. But then you start digging a bit deeper and sometimes it doesn't go. Autistic people, are they're called what I call Google ninjas. So, you know, it's like, what do you know about this subject? And you sit and you think, I don't know anything about this subject. Straight on Google and find out. And then you know everything within a matter of minutes. You know, you suck it in and you become an expert in seconds on the topic that previously you didn't know anything about. And that's, that can be really quite dangerous in terms of masking because actually people don't realize that there is this superficiality there and that it actually is that intelligent fluff is actually hiding what's the real person underneath, what I actually want to say. But it's our way of kind of pushing through conversations and getting through it to the end of it. And so you can escape as quickly as possible or that people love you because you're fascinating and they want to listen to you. It's a kind of, there's multiple thought processes that go with it, but. Yeah, for me as well, and I know that this isn't about PDA, but for me as well, I use it to disarm people. Well, I have in my life as a form of defense, as a form of keeping myself safe, as a form of keeping people at bay, as a form of never being vulnerable, as a form of maintaining some form of control. So I remember being young and using huge words in order to disarm people so they wouldn't argue with me anymore. I have a brother-in-law who is autistic and wouldn't identify himself as autistic but is autistic and loves to sit, and I'm not kidding, for hours, I mean it, hours, and pull apart a topic. And he loves to do that with me because we are very, very similar in autistic nature. And most people won't do that with him because they're terrified because he gets in really deep and he can be really offensive. But to me, I love the opportunity to get in there with him and pull things apart. And I guess my point is... I'm never afraid of a good argument with somebody because language, even if I don't know as much as they do, language is on my side, articulation. And I see this so often with parents of autistic children who don't realise that they're autistic. They are so articulate. They communicate really well, but you are so bang on about it being part of the mask. 
most definitely. And that's the first thing I think when I hear somebody speak like this or I get an email from a mother or a father or any carer or family member. How I know someone is autistic comes across in their writing. I don't even have to look at them or meet them. I can read something they write and go, okay, autistic. Sure. (laughs) It's not just the words they use. I think it's the energy that they convey through those words as well. It's almost like, yeah, we're going to wander off into the realms of woo-ness, but it's almost like part of their energy has gone into their writing and that energy exists around that writing. And then the energy is transferred back out to us because there's emotion around words and things. Non-autistic people talk about reading between the lines and Maybe necessarily what they mean there is around literalism, you know, that someone could write something and there's some other aspect to it that maybe somebody hasn't considered. But actually our reading in between the lines is very much emotionally based rather than literally based, which is quite ironic because we're accused of being literal all the time, (laughs) you know, but actually emotion plays such a huge part in it. And I think a lot of this comes back to the diagnostic criteria is written about non-autistic people who are broken. Yes. And what it's missing is that actually when it's talking about deficits in communication, it's talking about deficits in non-autistic communication, but actually we're really good at autistic communication. So if you were to reverse criteria, you could say non-autistic people have huge deficits in autistic communication and you could break it down that way as well. It's the double empathy thing backwards and forwards, isn't it? It's about looking at it from the other side. Absolutely. And I think too, just touching back on what you were saying about the essence that comes from the writing from an autistic person, how we tap into that energy. I think also we identify some recurring themes. When we're unidentified autistic adults, even if we're identified, we have very similar threads that run through our lives. You know, there might be mental illness in our families, addiction, all kinds of themes that recur because there may be misdiagnoses or there may be somebody who's very controlling or because they were highly anxious and felt completely out of control because they had this backstory of never being in control and always being shamed and humiliated. But you read their emails and you just know instantly. I know instantly if someone's autistic. And also, non-autistic people don't give you a chronological history. They don't give you (laughs) all the information that autistic people believe is relevant. Uh Uh-huh. Very little information from non-autistic people. Very little. And I think what you see when you look at emails like this, we both get them a lot. We have pattern spotting brains. We have problem solving brains that like to look for patterns in things. Yes. And answers. And I think if you took a generalized average email from a parent who's making an inquiry and saying like, you know, all of this has happened in my life and what do I do? You can look through that and it's almost like someone has taken a pin and pinned aspects of my life within their life, like put a little flag in each, yeah. each kind of area. And it, and that's what we see. And that's what we connect with. It's like, you could take a photo of them and overlay it over your own photo and aspects would match up. It's really hard to put ironically for a communication piece. This is really hard to put into words, isn't it? Because the language just does not exist to express this. We're using non-autistic terminology to describe autistic behavior, and that's where it all falls down. It's really interesting, Kieran. I liken this to, because we talk about this a bit, how, and I say this a lot to many people, what I want to express about my autistic experience, there isn't always a language for. So I end up using words that are inadequate Mm. and make it sound like it doesn't make sense or it's ridiculous. And that's how a lot of autistic experience comes to be stigmatized. 
because we have to make do with the words we have that are not our language. And I liken that to sharing an office with a friend of mine who is also a past colleague and she's Macedonian. And I've learned this with a lot of our friends that are European. They talk on the phone with their family or their partners in their own language. And every now and then, an English word will be thrown in there or they'll do a sentence in English and then go back to their language. And I said to her one day, why do you do that? And she said, because there are certain parts of our language that can only be expressed in English. We don't have those words in Macedonian. And for me, that's the same as the autistic experience. We have to take parts of the English language to describe to non-autistic people our experience. However, they're probably still not going to get it because we're making do with what we have. And when I try and, you know, I've done lives where it feels really risky to me, but I've done lives and I've talked about energy as an example. The risk for me is that there's a whole few populations of people that use the terminology energy to describe psychic phenomenon and superstition and things like that. That's not really what I'm talking about when I talk about energy, but sometimes it kind of overlaps and there's a border there that it crosses. But again, that's because there's no adequate English language for the autistic experience in many parts. And that's why the criteria is so limited because it's based on behavioral observation not the internal lived experience that we don't have language for. So I don't know why I started talking about that. <laughs> I don't know what that's got to do. It has a lot to do with communication, really. It ha has everything to do with communication because when you talk about energy, it is about emotional exchange. And we do all humans exchange emotions with each other. And that's why I think a lot of people are struggling under the pandemic with Zoom calls and things like that, because when you're mm -hmm. not in a room with someone, there's no emotional exchange. You don't get emotional feedback from people. It's part of the sensory process. It's part of sensory processing. It's actually extrasensory perception, which again, people think, oh my God, they're going to go and talk about telekinesis and pyrokinesis and things like that. The extrasensory perception is about that energy, that emotional exchange between people. It's you picking up on the emotions of other people. We talk about empaths, which really is a Star Trek term. It's not, not really a thing, but it is about people who are more open to emotional exchanges. And that's autistic people generally, because I think we as a people, although we are told that we are emotionless and that we can't read other people's emotions, but that's not quite right because on a surface level, yes, we do. On a very surface level, yes, we do. But actually on a deeper level, emotionally, we are feeling those emotions. And that's where that notion comes of empathy and being an empath and being empathic. Again, it's something that we don't have language for, which is really, really bad. You know, the fact that we say empath, which came from Star Trek. <laughs> it's like Star Trek came up with a word, which we now have to apply. Is that really where it originated? The idea around it was from before there, but Star Trek popularized the notion that there were these empathic people yeah. that could read other people's emotions. So it's bizarre that we have to fall back on sci-fi tropes in order to, again, it's that the language isn't there. But again, when you talk about energy like that, it's not woo. It's not crystals and reading auras and things like that. 
But I think a lot of that kind of understanding actually does stem from that. Because if you think someone who is <clears throat> who has synthesis, I can't I can never say this word, synth synthesia or synthanasia, I can never pronounce it properly, but you know, seizing colors and visualizing colors and things. So if you are quite empathic and you pick up on other people's deeper emotions and what they're feeling emotionally, but you see that in colors. That's me. There you go. So, but you have people that say, I can read auras. You kind of are. On one level, you are, but on another level, you're not. You're just picking up on the same emotions that other people pick up on, but you're actually seeing it in a color form. This is brilliant. Good. Brilliant, Kieran. I'm not kidding. I never thought about it like that. I had thought about all the other stuff, like when I meet somebody who calls themselves spiritual or a psychic medium or a clairvoyant or they're very open-minded or however they describe themselves, I always think autistic. Yeah. But I'd never thought about the aura thing like that. I'd never thought about it like that. And I don't talk about it because I don't want to be stigmatized, but I don't see myself as someone who's psychic or anything like that but you've just nailed it that's exactly what it is again going back to how i talk about autism's neurology and autistic neurology the filters work very differently they let more information through so sensory filters let more and more information through so you could also look at that as being raw humans Yes. So because we feel more, we are more in touch with the sensory environment around us because we have more of that information flowing into us. So you can understand when someone doesn't have the understanding of what's happening and they see colors or they feel like they can read people's minds because they can pick up on their body cues and their emotions and things like that. You can see how you fall into that pattern of you need answers. We're problem solvers, like you always Absolutely. say. And that is an answer to the problem. It might not be a perfect fit, but it kind of fits because then you can fall into hyper-focusing on it and making it a whole thing about yourself. And it becomes an answer for the missing bits of your identity. Absolutely. And before I realized I was autistic, well, when I was exploring the possibility, that's one of the things that surprised me. I was reading about how Many autistic adults identify with being spiritualists, which means people who dabble in those extra sensory perceptive skills. And it was in that moment that I went, oh, wow, and then started to make the connection like you just said. That's so interesting. So I know we don't have much time left. We've got 10 minutes. I wonder if we could talk about, I was just thinking how we can identify each other in a group setting, for example, for me. It would be someone who is, like you described before, hanging around in the background somewhere, just kind of fleeting between people, saying a little bit here and there, doing their best to not look awkward. Or it can be somebody in deep conversation with another person. And what I often say is once those people find someone who will sit and have a deep conversation with them, that's their person for the whole. Right. I found my safe person. <laughs> Honestly, I remember yeah. being at a party and meeting another autistic person, and I didn't know I was autistic, and she found me, moved from her designated spot to come and sit next to me, asked me, literally said, so what's your story? Tell me about your life. Literally said that to me. I was like, whoa. And then followed me to the toilet and didn't, yeah, didn't want to be alone. 
but I understood it. Mm. Didn't want to look awkward. We know sometimes how hard it is to have those moments where we're alone. Yeah. Also, I think there's, do you think there's a higher awareness that non-autistic people, we have an experience and history of trauma of being targeted when we don't look like we're engaged with other people. So if you stand out or you look awkward, you become a target. And I think we carry that into adulthood. Yeah, definitely. It's a hard one, isn't it? Because it all comes back to masking. I'm doing it again. Everything comes back to masking in every situation. Because even outside of social situations, it comes back to masking because you mask this all from yourself as well. Everything you do in preparation to prepare for a social event and everything afterwards that you do, it's all part of the same process. But that, that trauma of being singled out like that, it weighs on us. Have you read the story of the Pilgrim's Progress? No. Never heard that before. It's based on a Bible story. Uh, it's about these children that aren't very nice. So an old man comes along and he actually is like a magician, but he gives them burdens, physically burdens them. So they have like a burden that's attached to them. It's like a big rucksack that's like stuck to their backs. And they have to go on this journey to this place where these burdens can be removed. And the whole analogy is that they lose the burdens and the burdens get lighter along the way as they help people and have adventures and do like good things. We carry similar burdens, these burdens of trauma, because from right from year one, we are literally soaked in shame, absolutely soaked in it, drenched in it. It's like non-autistic people come on the hose pipe and hose us down with it. And it's all framed around the validation of our communication, who we are and where we go. And it's like big Alicia beacons that are flashing when we are in a social event and other people do come and want to connect with that when they recognize that same profile and that energy that we're giving off a couple of years ago i was at this most horrible networking thing i never go to networking events and i got dragged to it and i ended up being cornered by someone and literally what we were talking about holding a space for someone i wanted to hold the space for them but i was incredibly uncomfortable with how they wanted me to hold that space and i was literally for the three hours that i was there i was chased around this room like literally walking backwards around the room, trying to get away. Not trying to get away, but trying to, yeah, wanting to keep with the conversation, but get, have my space as well and not be backed into a corner. Because the only time I want to get in a corner is when I want to be in the corner, <laughs> you know, and it's not to be pushed there. And then it becomes difficult because you, someone's identified you as a safe person. You've identified them as a safe person, but because I think subconsciously they're so happy that they've found a safe person, that can be really overwhelming as well. And that can be difficult. A lot of this is about self-awareness and that's the issue when parents come to us. A lot of those parents do lack self-awareness because they have been masking for so long and haven't realized. And, you know, and then it's really difficult when you haven't looked properly in a mirror for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and then all of a sudden you have to. That's a really difficult thing to do. And when you have spent that whole time communicating in a way that's completely inefficient for you, isn't effective for you at all, but then you realize that there's another way that you can do things which is more suitable for you, but you've spent so long doing it the other way, you form the habit. It's like giving up smoking or kicking up any kind of habit. It's a yeah. really complex and difficult thing to do. Yes, it's almost internalized ableism. Well, it is. Yeah, it literally is. I still grapple with that myself because while you were talking, I was thinking about how we absolutely mask to ourselves 100%, but also when I realized I was autistic or when I was diagnosed, I had no idea what was real and what wasn't. 
about me. And I fooled myself into thinking I enjoyed things that were actually painful for me. And then there are also society's ideas about what mental health is and what people need to obtain substantial health and well-being. And one of those is community. We must have community. We must go out. We must be with other people. And for the autistic person, sometimes that's the worst thing. We need a lot of downtime. So there are things that are promoted as good for everybody that were terrible for me, but I'd push myself into it. But as well, you know, I'd go to an event and I'd communicate and connect with people and all of that. And I'd go home and I will have hated it. And it would take me weeks to recover because I'd be burnt out and I'd have a social hangover. But despite all of that, I'd go, I did really well tonight and I'd be on a holiday. I humaned tonight. I did like normal people do. I'm getting better because my whole life's journey was about being better, doing better, getting to be this person that I really need to be. And when I was diagnosed, there was relief. There was grief and relief. I cried because I thought, oh my God, I'm never going to be better. I'm going to be like this all my life. But then the relief was, I'm not a broken version of a neurotypical. I'm a perfectly whole autistic person. And now I'm trying to be neurotypical. Yes. And failing. And I'm so sorry, but we have to end on that note. I could talk about this forever, forever, because communication just encompasses so much. Yeah. I think there's so many components and aspects here that we should just talk about forever. And I do want to get on mutism as well. Because that was an, as a child. And I don't want people to think that because we're like this now, we must have been like this when we were kids. goes back to that fluctuating. There's so much, isn't there, Karen? And just yeah. you can't keep it specific to communication because there's so many other elements. No, but I think that's really important, though, because you go to any training and it's broken down into these individual aspects that are in a vacuum and not connected to each other. But I think it's really important that Although we have an overarching theme that we draw in on all this other stuff because it is also connected, you can't talk about one thing without bringing in another 10 or 15. We're talking about human beings. Well, exactly. I mean, we're the most complex creatures on the planet. I think when they break it down, that's because they're focusing on deficits. Whereas when we're talking about human beings here, we're talking about how to be human, autistic human. But I think that, again, is a very, very neurotypical thing to do because neurotypicals love to categorize things. And I don't think we do. I think because we see the chaos and we see how muddled everything is, we struggle with those categorizations because they're nonsensical. They're just arbitrary. 